Welcome back everyone to episode 4 of the HOD podcast. Today's episode is focused on transformation. We're going to be touching on what it means in terms of history and geography, but also on how institutional transformation can provide educational access to communities. We're focusing on transformation given that it is a central pillar of the truth, racial healing, and transformation framework being advanced by the American Association of Colleges and Universities and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. This framework, also referred to as THRT, has been the focus of our podcast this season. Today, we're fortunate to have the opportunity to hear from Dr. Mark Obermeyer Velasquez and Dr. Joshua Abreu about transformation happening at their respective institutions. More specifically, in this episode, we discuss the work behind institutional transformation and what it takes to create higher education institutions so that they support the success of historically underserved students and faculty and their communities. And now I turn it over to Omar to introduce Dr. Obermeyer Velasquez and then to Truth to introduce Dr. Joshua Abreu. Our first guest, Dr. Mark Overmayo Velasquez, is the son of a Mexican migrant and a scholar of Chinese religion and philosophy. Dr. Overmayo Velasquez is the inaugural university campus director of the University of Connecticut, Hartford. He works in solidarity with UConn students, faculty, staff, and the communities in which they live to advocate for education as the practice of equity and justice. The founding director of UConn's El Instituto, Institute of Latinx, Caribbean, and Latin American Studies, Dr. Overmeyer Velasquez draws on his scholarly expertise on marginalized and migrant communities to catalyze and promote research and teaching at UConn Hartford. He has dedicated his research to building intellectual bridges between historical fields across the North-South divide and between the past and the present. He has been a visiting scholar and lecturer at universities in Mexico, Chile, and China, and recently was research professor at the Leonel Fernandez Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Jordan, Amman. The first Latino elected official in West Hartford, he served a six-year term as a member and chairman of the West Hartford Board of Education. He currently serves on a number of boards of directors, and he keeps his commitment to the arts by playing keyboard in the Yukon faculty band Blues Without Borders. Also joining us for our conversation, Dr. Joshua Abreu is the director of the Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven. Dr. Abreu has a background in criminal justice and higher education, having both a BA and an MA in criminal justice from the University of Massachusetts Lowell, and his PhD in educational leadership from the University of Connecticut. He is drawn to classroom discourse and how the identities and backgrounds of the students and instructors shape and influence that discourse. He has witnessed firsthand how the concept of a liberal arts education has the capacity of influencing students' development across intersecting identities that touch on political, economic, and social dynamics. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Mark and Joshua, thank you again for being here with us today. We're so excited to learn from you. 
As you both know, UConn has recently been invited to become a Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Campus Center, which is an initiative being led by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and the AACU. Transformation is a key goal of this initiative, and we know that transformation can take many forms, including at the individual level as well as the institutional level. Given your respective leadership roles, can you share a bit about how you define transformation within the context of a minority serving institution? And really, you can speak from your own experience. Some of you are at institutions that are emerging Hispanic serving institutions. Some of you are at a variety of designated label institutions. So feel free to engage from, from the experience you have. And also, if you could speak to some examples that you might have about transformation for racial equity within that type of institutional context, including any challenges that you have experienced or encountered on your campuses related to doing this work. Yeah, Mark, could you get us started on that? Thank you, Milagros. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and with Joshua and the others. So I, I guess I'd like to take a step back and think about what transformation means in the context of both the history and geography of UConn Hartford, the university campus I lead, and thinking about, you know, the situating UConn Hartford in the larger history of American higher ed that has primarily been historically focused around exclusion, right? And and being and also for the listeners to understand that UConn as a system has seven campuses, the main campus at stores, a law school, and a, and a health center, and then four what we call regional campuses that were developed after World War II to provide access to communities around the state. So in my leadership of the Hartford campus, um, what I'm thinking about in terms of transformation is to first center in the history, and I know we'll talk about the centering in the history of what has been kind of limiting access to individuals, particularly along racial lines, historically gender lines as well, and thinking about how do we confront that and think about that and name that in who we are in our histories. And then specifically the geography of where we are in Hartford, a over 80% black, brown, migrant, refugee city as also the capital of the state. How do we deliver educational opportunities in that context, knowing that our students are mostly from the surrounding areas. They're from around the state, but from surrounding areas. So first of all, acknowledging that history, that space, and then who our students are, right? Coming to, as, as the reason we're here, an MSI, Minority Serving Institution, which in our case means we're both an emerging HSI. Uh, we have about 18, 90% Latinx Hispanic students. We're an, an Anapesian, Asian American, Native American, Pacific Islander serving institution, the largest, I think one of, if not so, the largest uh, Anapesian institution in, on the East Coast, or at least in New England, and a majority first generation students. So who our students are and centering their stories and who they are in the way that we approach them and support them. And then transformation for me means a lot of things, right? It means for those students in that historical context, getting accepted to and enrolling at this university is transformational for them and their families. It sets up a condition of possibility for them that is, is vast and enormous. And we've seen just students walking onto our campus is such a, a powerful thing for them. And that's certainly part of our work is how do we support and retain them and give them 
have our faculty and our staff and everyone who is doing the work at UConn Hartford recognize who they are and all of their richness and then deliver educational possibilities, which again, we can talk about in the specifics, what that means from curricular offerings to the work that we're doing with the TRHT hub through you and Milagros and other folks. And also, and I'll stop here, is that working in particular with folks in the community. We have a, an amazing community here in Hartford with a lot of organizations who have collectively decades, if not centuries of wisdom that they can bring and support us and our students in the work that we're doing. So working with specific programs, and I'll say more about this later, uh, that have our students connect with the communities and learn in those spaces as well. So when I think about uh, institution transforming, I think I think main, I think mainstream America thinks about it demographically, right? The, the population increases. So therefore you're going to have, in, in this case, Latin folks enrolling into, into college, and then we're gonna see those colleges transform or higher education transform. But from my experience, what I've witnessed in my institution has been also a change of admissions criteria that actually encourages certain groups of students to enroll into that institution, right? So by getting rid of maybe the SATs or lowering down the score of SATs, lowering down the GPA that you're looking for with certain students, you're committing yourself as an institution to supporting students who didn't have access to a four-year liberal arts college, where that's the institution I'm at, right? These students are in the past, like five years ago, 10 years ago, before these changes and mission changes were, were made, they would have maybe gone to a community college, right? But now they're coming to us, a small liberal arts college, that's over 30 grand, right? So now you see the landscape change, right? And it's an institution where it wasn't based on that, right? This is Albertus Magnus College. It's, it's an institution created by Dominican sisters, nuns, in response to the ex exclusivity of Yale University, right? It was an all-women's college. And in response to being a male-only uh, male college, these Dominican sisters created this college, right? But that also came with middle class, upper class America, even if it was grounded in some type of social justice, right? Creating these opportunities for, for women for education, it still was inclusive when you think about social class. So, you know, you do that for, I think about 80 years, right? It, the, the college has been around for almost a hundred, but for like 90 years, 85 years, you're pretty much exclusive. And then you open up these admissions criteria and then suddenly, a school, a college that's not used to providing education to low-income communities, underserved community, suddenly find themselves with an abundance of students who need that support without a, history, a historical context of the college providing support to these students. So in my case, from my experience, we saw that college transform almost overnight, especially when they changed some of these admissions criteria. The challenges that come with that is, so, I mean, I see the challenges in two parts, right? So being Hispanic, you have a cultural thing, right? Where your cultural practices, the, the, the things you want to talk about, the topics you want to talk about, your, your professional aspirations, right? What do you want to study? And then you have more of the academic skill challenges, right? You're coming from underserved communities. So it's like, regardless if the college has Latin American studies, 
if you're using instructional strategies that were successful for middle-class America, then it doesn't matter if you're providing a culturally relevant curriculum if the instructions doesn't position students to be successful, right? So this is, with this transformation, it's beautiful to, to see, right? To see so many people have this opportunity for liberal arts education, which is more focused on the humanities, right? A little bit more focused on philosophy, on these bigger picture ideas. But it's been a challenge when you have a bunch of professors and instructors that haven't been trained or accustomed to providing the instructional strategies that will make these students successful. And that's kind of where we're at right now. We're, we're really trying to figure that part out. Thank you to both for your explanation and providing that really helpful context at each of your specific institutions. And context really matters, especially when we're talking about the history of exclusivity, who these institutions were designed for, and the fact that this wave of more racially minoritized students and also first-generation college students who are coming in. So thinking about the context that you all have set for us, one can say that embedded in this process of rebuilding and transformation is recognizing how to get to this point of racial inequity from a historical and political perspective. That said, how has your respective institution or campus reckoned with this history and legacy of exclusion while envisioning work toward a more just and equitable future, both societally and as an institution. I know you all have kind of touched on this already, but if you could provide more specific examples about initiatives, programs, the way that you're training faculty and staff to really think about this process of coming to terms with the history of exclusivity and how you're providing equity in the present. Thank you, Truth. Yeah, a lot lots to be said there. I mean, so first of all, I lean heavily on folks from Native, from so my, my academic backgrounds in ethnic studies and in history. So thinking about folks in Native American Indigenous studies, Chicana, Chicanx studies, being able to retell a story of America and of higher education through the lens of, well, you know, global majority, racially minoritized, and, people and communities is really central to the work we're doing at Yukon Hartford. So, for example, taking the, I like to think of the term 1881 as this historical moment for Yukon when, when Yukon was founded and there's this, we do this everywhere, right? Using that this kind of established moment as a tagline to kind of give credence and value because the longer an institution's been around, the more value it has. But the tagline is also a kind of, right, has a colonial logic to it, a fetishization of the fact that that is a moment of erasure of native communities. It, it's that's the moment that we can look at the land grab of who we are and the land that we're on based on a larger history of American genocide and white supremacy and talking about that as part of our narrative as well. So kind of inverting or, or changing or disrupting narratives, I think is really important and there's lots of things we've done done around that to to highlight the fact that the work that we're doing is within those longer timelines. So for example, to your question, we've built out again with those colleagues and working with folks in community, uh, what we call a history shapers, a, a justice and equity 
visual representation on campus where you can walk on campus and see the, the history of Yukon Hartford in this particular space in Hartford, highlighting the success and challenges of across the history of Hartford and then locating students and their work and their struggles around this. A lot of this is about, right, the struggles for access and equity and justice and we're, how we're part of that larger trend in and, and efforts in the United States as one institution, an anchor institution in the city of, of Hartford to do that work. So that's, that's a kind of visual representation where we focus on this and retell the story in the kind of vein of the TRHT work to retell narratives that center the power and strengths of, of communities of color more broadly. I think the other thing that we're doing too is you know, doing a lot of different things, but one is working with Again, as I said, community organizations. So, for example, a project working with the city of Hartford and the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving to do work that they call Love Your Block, that is having our students and researchers on campus going into communities and learning from the efforts that those communities are doing to revitalize their particular spaces and then doing the research and data analysis to better target interventions and support the work across the city. And that does a number of things, right? It highlights the strengths of neighborhoods. It gives students opportunities for high impact learning. In particular, we know that students at MSIs really benefit from that kind of, I mean, students everywhere, but certainly from students that can go back into their communities and have those kinds of critical service learning opportunities is, is really key. And the access again to our community-based uh, mission. And then, of course, communities and students and faculty see that this is really about democratic representation and solidarity. That education is really can be and should be part of these restorative transformational pieces that are in and outside of the classroom and working in this community. So it's retelling the narrative and then doing this kind of work that is pedagogically centered, but and at the same time working in, in the communities. The city of Hartford. Before I speak on the specific strategies that we've implemented in the last few years, I do want to say something about, I guess, an epiphany that I had when I first got there, right? So I'm not the most I'm a spiritual person, not the most religious person, but I did grow up going to church for a little bit and I went to an Episcopal high school, right? So I, I do have experience with a Jesuit environment, right? But it wasn't until recent until I got I got this position where I really started to kind of tap into like their theological justice, right? Like like the the narrative of of justice that's embedded in religions, and you know apart from the institution of religions, right? Like that that's one thing, but but the scriptures and and the kind of like theological philosophy that grounded the founding of the institution, right? This idea of providing education to all people, right? And even though it was limited, right? Because it was trying to compete with Yale. So it was kind of reproducing some of the exclusivity of Yale by obviously keeping the institution to certain women, right? Not all women, uh, definitely not black women. Um, that came out much later, I think in the seventies was the first time, the first black woman to graduate from the college. And this is a college that opened up in 1925, right? But what I found that whenever I bring in equity, especially in, in some type of um, college-wide context, I can always ground it in the history, the theological history of the college and that social justice 
narrative that's been used throughout history of the college. I don't have to work so hard to to be inclusive because it already is in the language, is in the history, is in the mission and the vision of the college, right? So that's something that that was somewhat surprising to me, right? I didn't have to work so hard with that piece. So that set us up for a couple of things. I mean, I mean, low hanging fruit was just mapping out the presence and success of BIPOC folks, right? Staff, faculty, and students from a historical perspective. So who were the, the first black women to graduate? Who were the first Latinx folks to graduate? Who were, who were the first black faculty members to, to have a full-time job at the institution, right? And working with the library to create a, a lib guide on, on the his, institutional history. I mean, this is something that wasn't there, right? And unfortunately, something drastic like George Floyd murder gets everybody fired up and ready to do some social justice work. And this is kind of the stuff that emerged from the George Floyd murder, right? Like, how do we grapple with our history, right? Especially where, where our Black-centered history. So that was low-hanging fruit, right? Like working with the library and, and uncovering some of this uh, Black, Latinx, minoritized history. More applicable to the current student, one thing that, that I worked on was implementing, designing and implementing the general education curriculum, right? So for the past 25 years, the gen ed curriculum was really, was it started off as like the big bang theory, right? this big universal questions, like how did we come here, right? And the idea is as you move along your four years that it ends with you. But what we were pushing back against was, uh, what about we start with you and you end with the big bang theory, right? Be because we don't, we're working with a population whose humanity has been stripped away a lot of times, right? Where, where the self, it's not good enough, right? Like you don't dress the part, you don't speak the part, you don't look the part, right? It's a constant attack on your humanity, whatever, especially in educational spaces, right? You, you, you're not saying, you're not saying that word, right? Right. We got to correct you every time you mispronounce that word. And now we're talking about how I mispronounce math, right? And I'm, I said math and not math. I say ax and not ask. And now we're not really talking about the con what I'm what I'm trying to talk about. Now we're talking about how I speak, right? So when you when you're when you're committed to educating folks who have been like stripped of the humanity, right? My argument was that you got to start with the self. You got to recenter the student. You got to get students to talk about themselves. You know, to talk about their grandmas and their moms and their dads and their uncles and aunts in the communities. So what we did was. Instead of talking with the Big Bang Theory first, the curriculum was designed to ask, you know, how do I think? How should I act? How should I think? Right? Putting the I at the center, right? So when freshmen, when, when first year students come, they take two semesters back to back on grappling with some of these questions while engaging with with literature that that talks about this, like the Socrates and MLK's letter from Birmingham where it really centers on the eye and what you should do in, in the face of injustice, right? We're currently in the pilot and we're seeing positive results. So only a handful of instructors are teaching. Eventually it'll be like 10 sections going at the same time. Right now it's only four sections with four different types of students, right? We got quote unquote at risk students, folks who come in with, with a lot of academic needs. We have the honor students. And we have the evening students, online students, and then we have kind of like middle of the road students. So we're, we're piloting that general education curriculum, but we're seeing positive results, right? Folks are realizing that 
students are more engaged when you ask them about themselves, that they're that these are questions that they grapple with, but haven't talked about in a structured way, in an academic, intellectual sense, right? Uh, how does your experiences with your grandmother has impacted you, right? How you see the world. Not only does that make sense for all of us, I think it makes sense for Hispanics or institution, given our familiar traits, right? With our, our communal traits, right? We, we, we tend to really value the family unit. So that's, we've seen positive results there. And the other aspect of the generic curriculum was these pathways, right? That have a particular concentration related to what you want to study, right? Your major, right? So we, 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 we understand the, the top five majors and we created pathways based on some of those majors and you pick your pathways. So it could be, you know, trauma, you know, trauma and justice. So that's a psychological one, right? So uh, psychology professors develop a pathway, right? With like six to eight courses that students take and it all align it, it all aligns with a particular theme so instead of taking these random liberal arts courses that students feel lost in like what's the point of this right I, I take one here one there one over here we decided to go with this pathway model where students feel the connection between what i'm studying and the real world right that and it's leading and it aligns with my major right so when i transition to my major which tends to happen more drastically junior and senior year it, it, it's it's a seamless transition. It doesn't feel like two different experiences from gen ed to your major, but there's a there's a almost like a soft handoff from this liberal arts component kind of perspective into disciplinary into more focus as you move into um, junior and senior year. Those are big um, changes that that we've made recently. That is directly dependent on the enrollment of Hispanic students and understand and Black students as well and understanding the importance of centering students, especially students who have been stripped of the humanity throughout their education. What Joshua, you're saying was so, so powerful, in particular, the focus on values and, and the, your institution coming out of this liberation theology space that centers the kind of tr the, the possibility of the individuals finding freedom in his or her their lives. And I think one challenge that we've had, we arrived and opened just five and a half years ago as the, the the newest campus in the university system. So what we've been trying to do is really, to your point, Joshua, is create a, a, and steep ourselves in a value of social justice and equity and centering that as not just a way of being in the community, but also highlighting it as a pedagogical imperative for our students and what we're doing. So that is fundamental and critical and really drawing on the work of folks like Bell Hooks and others who are thinking about this kind of work for these kinds of institutions. I'm very jealous that you're doing this work in a curricular fashion. And, and that's something that because we're a part of a larger university, we at the regional campus have less space right. to kind of create those. But I completely agree if thinking about ways that we could center our students, uh, Latinx or, or or, or students or who they are and where they're coming from. And we do that in certain ways by, you know, who we have, the hiring we have around staff, around opportunities in, in the community. But I think starting from the get-go that you all are doing is is really an important step that we need to be working on better here. Yeah, and we, you know, we, we surveyed the students, we, we asked what they wanted to know about, and 
I guess unsurprisingly, you know, a lot of them fo- want to focus on social justice and equity because that's what they're experiencing in the community, right? So, you know, me ser- research is research, right? Whatever you're experiencing, it, it, you want to know more of uh, or, or you want to address it, right? So the subject matter content is related to what they want to study. We're being responsive to what they want to study. We're not it's not an indoctrination of like you you have to you have to care about social justice stuff or it's gonna come knocking at your door right it's 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 which i think is a message that we tend to reserve for like middle class america because they don't see the social justice knocking on the door on a day-to-day basis so we have to kind of convince them our latinx and black students experience it at a high rate all the time and they want to do something about it so as a as an academic institution that prepares folks for the professional field if they want to study that as as a profession then we got to give it to them you know it's more just being it's almost common sense it's like they want to study that we got to give it to them and it's less about ideology for me it just aligns well i think it's important ideologically speaking regardless of what institution i'm teaching but it also makes sense where i'm the fact that i'm teaching folks who want to study that so we saw a, a, a high response and and trauma and social media studies, equity studies, right? Things that they see on the regular sustainability, like environmental studies uh, was really high. Unfortunately, it was very low uh, with the, the college wasn't happy with, was like religion and, spir- and spirituality studies, right? That's, that was tough to see for the institution, you know? And how do you convince people as a Jesuit institution, as a religious institution, that the value of a religion or, or kind of like theology. Um, that's more something that they're going to get regardless. They're going to have a choice there because of the institution, the mission of the college. Thank you so much, Mark and Joshua, for your impactful insights and the very specific examples that you shared with us based on the campuses where you're at. And I I have two, two questions, uh, one for each of you based on the responses that you provided us with. And so I'd like to start off with Mark and thank you for explaining how UConn Hartford uses visuals to tell a more complete story of the institution and the campus and its history. This idea of having change makers highlighted on your campus can be impactful in creating more asset-based narratives and just changing the narrative in general. So I'm curious, um, in what ways have you witnessed faculty and staff dismantling these deficit narratives and practices and instead shifting towards centering a belief in equal human value for all people and kind of a two-parter what what are mechanisms perhaps or support systems that you've witnessed that help facilitate this process yeah i mean let me again back up and say part of the work here has been gathering a community at yukon harper that wants to do this work so deliberately hiring faculty and staff who are committed to this, the value and mission of Yukon Hartford is, is a space that centers equity and justice. That's not to say that the folks who have been in this space or doing that, I think it's it's that. And also, for example, in my, in my particular case, my cabinet are majority women, folks of color, and first-generation college students. So those folks who are running this campus are reflecting are a reflection of and leaders in the space that look like and are part of the community in which they serve. So that's really been really critical. So a couple of examples, I mentioned already the piece that we're doing in the community with uh, with the city, the city is I think really been exciting and is part of our research mission. Another one which is working with 
you all know our director of academic affairs, Saran Stewart, and she and Ada Rivera and others are doing something which seeming seemingly mundane, but really profound and transformative. That is looking at data of student success data in classes and disaggregating data along lines of gender and race and seeing what the rates of D's, F's, and W's withdrawals from classes and how they are more pronounced in some classes. And then using that to, to schedule and think about classroom interventions and to support teaching, right? So if we see that, for example, a high number of classes have high failure rates of our black and brown students, in particular, say, black women in certain STEM classes, we know there's something about the teaching there that needs support. So a all hands on deck approach with curricular intervent interventions, student supports, teaching train teacher training and working it, for example, with colleagues in biology. And it has its yielding successes, right? It's we're show we're seeing that if we have and focus attention on using an equity lens, to understand where the challenges are in certain classes, a really fine grained approach, we can see transformation and change for our students. So how we, what Joshua mentions earlier, right? How do we teach that class, right? Not delivering the content, but the actual teaching of the class to the students who are in them and how those students every year are different students and come from a variety of backgrounds. So that's, that's one is really kind of, again, thinking about the students and their humanity and who they are in their fullest sense. And the other one, which is you know related, but you know, we just opened for the first time, thanks to my colleague Nadine Brennan, our first food pantry. So recognizing that our students come with a lot of a lot of challenges, including food and food insecurity. And so within not only a number of weeks, we've had eleven hundred students go into the pantry to get much needed nourishment so they can focus on being scholars, and that's been really, really, really critical. And that's yet another example of the work that we're doing with community partners to do to deliver that. And again, it's it comes with it retelling a story, right? One that acknowledges that our students, they and their families need these kinds of supports. So I think that the the Husky Harvest Food Pantry has been really critical uh, as in another example to the question you were asking. Yeah, thank you so yeah. much for that, Mark. And Congratulations also, by the way, for the food pantry. That's really fantastic news. And just, yeah, I just really want to uplift the work that Yukon Hartford is engaging in. And I, I really love the first example that you shared because it reminded me of an institution back in Arizona, community college where I used to work that was an HSI. And they were, the efforts that they took part in were very much centered around the student. And I feel oftentimes when we work with historically marginalized students, we expect the student to change for us in the institution and the system, and we should be catering our services around the student and their needs. And so what we ended up doing was we, we which is actually still taking place, we would host a math boot camp for students. So we would capture their placement scores. And if they didn't test into a 100 plus level class, then we would provide them with a two week long math boot camp to get them into a 100 level class. And it was a very small space less than 20 students, a tutor was provided. The sessions were held in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, being mindful of students who were perhaps parents or had a difficult work schedule, et cetera. And so this idea of transformation is so powerful, especially when it's catered around the student and their needs. And so Joshua, turning it over to you. So you spoke about the spiritual underpinnings of your institution. 
and how those underpinnings align with equity efforts today. Um, and I think it's it's so powerful that the institution already had a, a history and a mission to expand inclusion and the changes that you specifically help lead in terms of undergraduate curriculum that centers one's humanity by beginning with the self before going out to the larger connection to society and the world. And so, you know, we imagine that those underpinnings and the change in the curriculum impacts the work that you do as the director of the teaching center there. So similar to the question that I asked Mark, we're, we're wondering how have you witnessed faculty and staff dismantling deficit narratives and practices in working towards a belief of equal value for all people? And also like what are mechanisms or support systems that you've seen and witnessed help facilitate this process? So I've spent a lot of time um, creating learning communities for folks who are committed to the work. I feel like when you learn, when, when you when you create these highly structured spaces, right? A learning community uh, that's 10 hours, right? Funded, and then we meet once a month for two hours, right? And we're working towards a particular change, right? And a justification that I had was, uh, especially with leadership was, we have to create space for the usual suspects, right? The usual suspects are the, are the ones that show up to any little thing that you do, right? That they show up to all the events, they show up all to the programming. And we have like this love-hate relationship with the usual suspects, right? Because it, it, it represents that you are doing something, but it also represents that you're not expanding the way that maybe leadership wants you to expand, right? You see the same 10, 15 people and leadership is like, yeah, but what's up with the, the five instructors who are struggling? How can you bring them in? And I'm committed to creating a space for the usual suspects where they don't need like a introduction, an introduction to this work, that they need a little bit more structure, a little bit more advanced work, a little bit more structure, space and time to make changes that they know need to happen, but just don't have the time to, or just need the accountability, right? You just create these, these spaces where you hold folks accountable to make changes. So one thing that I've been committed to is leaning into the usual suspect and asking them what they need from us, right? What space, what resources can I provide for the, for, for, for the people that show up all the time so you can take it to the next step, right? I think we, it's like, we're committed to like, I think a lot of us are committed to like the, what is it like, like creating like um, paradigm shifts. Like if I just, if I just change the way that you think about your students, then you'd be good to go. And I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of people who are committed to the work and they just don't know what to do. Or they they created a new class. They're teaching a new set of students that went from in-person to online. Um, they went from during the day to evening, right? There's a lot of moving parts that even when you're committed to the work, suddenly there's a change and then you're kind of don't know what to do or you realize what you were doing is not working anymore. So, you know, one thing that we've created is learning communities and really keep and, and, and pushing back on this idea that all these other people need this work, because while we're doing that, it's only so much time in the day, right? So while we're at, while, while we're trying to figure out how to get more people into the workshop, we're at the same time ignoring the people who are there to begin with and we're going to show up on a regular basis. So that's one thing that we're doing at the, at least what I'm doing at the institution level. You know, we're really leaning into the the power of networking and the spurring to learn it, right? So what we've noticed is that when you have a over representation of first generation college students, right? 
you're going to have a lot of folks who are struggling to see the payoff from these four years or five years, right? Paying off, you know, getting those four or five, six thousand dollars loan every year. And like when nobody around you has done it before, it's hard to see the future. It's hard to see like, well, this is going to work out. So the person next to you and the per on both sides of you are, are, do are dealing with the same problem, not unable to kind of see the bigger picture and see that, that this commitment today is going to pay off later. Right. So I think what's happened is the institution has created um, an emphasis on experiential learning, right? Service learning, right? When you work in the community, internships, increasing internships and internship options for students. So for our day students, I think it's over 90% our students have an internship placement by the end of their four years, right? So, you know, the things that are really valued and like these high performing ex exclusive schools like a Yale, like a Wellesleyan, which is like this networking environment that, that's created in these institutions. We're trying to create that as well with folks that don't have any outlet to do those networking, right? The institution is providing that, that network the same way that Yale does, right? So you're creating these experiences where they can go out into internship, they can go out to the community, they, they could connect with organizations and see the connection between what they're doing in the class and the real world and de demystify the allure of the education, right? Like, I, I think this is going to end up good, but if you just stay in the classroom for four years, in those four years, you can drop off at any time. It's like you have to remind the student, no, this has real world consequences. Like, this is a real, real, real world consequences, ramifications, right? Like, that what you're doing here does apply in the real world. So one thing that we've done is now to support internships and research, right? Because research is an it's a type of experimental learning, right? You're expanding the concepts, the subject matter concept, and you're, you're seeing how they're playing out in the real world through research, right? So that, that that's a traditional aspect of education for the most part, right? So, but, but you're running into those internship and research in the second half of your career, junior and senior year, right? That's usually when you start engaging with that. So what we've done with the general education curriculum is in the pathways, you embed at least two experiential learning courses. So out of six courses you have to take, two of them got to be designated as experiential learning. And that could be service learning, that could be research, that could be case studies, whatever it is, it's a connection between the course concept and the real world. And again, you're helping first generation college students see the connection between the classroom and the real world and, and trying to convince them it's going to be fine. You're going to get a job. It's, it's your, the money is going to pay off. This investment is going to pay off. Uh, at least trying to 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 show that right and obviously you have the the benefit of recall right you you understand you understand the course material when you're when you're in a position to apply it to different situations right that's obviously going to impact academic learning but i think what students really see are impacted by is seeing the connection between what they're doing in the class in the real world and if you're not doing that I think for a lot of first generation college students, a lot of low income students, it just seems like a waste of time if you don't if you don't show that explicitly, if you don't make that connection. So with the inclusion of experiential learning in the in the gen ed curriculum, now we're spreading out that experiential learning across all four years, right? Freshman, sophomore year, you're engaging with the gen ed curriculum. 
junior year, you're, you're engaging with research and, and internships and senior year, you got internship as well. And then you're wrapping it up with like a humanities course at the end that kind of puts everything together. That's what that sounds so inspiring, <laughs> that big change, because what I'm hearing you say a couple of things, I'm hearing you say that there is an opportunity for particularly first gen students who may not have the network or the social capital, like people that they may know who have various careers based on a, a college education. So they're going to need to build their own network. They're kind of starting from scratch. And what you're saying is the institutions helping with that by building continuous opportunities throughout their undergraduate experience so that they are building on that network. But also something that you mentioned there mostly with the students, but it sounds like you're also doing it with the faculty, which is opportunities to see the connection, see how that thing you're talking about in class actually looks, feels, smells, um, right. is like in, in, in life, in, in the real world experience, in their communities. Right. Um, and you're doing that with faculty. You're saying, hey, there's people who already are interested in this work. They're showing up to the workshops. But even they kind of need opportunities to kind of advance their levels, advance their learning. And instead of kind of just offering a random curriculum, you're tapping in to asking them, what do you need to advance in the work that you're doing in the classroom? And then helping them have opportunities to improve their teaching as well based on their own needs. So for both communities, it sounds like, you know, you're really trying to ground it in what they need as a lived experience opportunity so that they can you know, not see everything from a theoretical lens, but from a practice lens. Like, what does it look like to actually, you know, be a doctor? So you might internship in a doctor's office or a dentist's office or whatever it might be, and you can see those connections with those pathways that you were talking about. I feel like that's really interesting, and I can't wait to learn more and hear about how this unfolds as it continues. I'm curious is what, so far, what has been the impact of that transformational change to the curriculum in terms of how faculty are teaching or even what the students at your institution are beginning to expect about their learning environment. It's funny because you spend like multiple years trying to hone down on a model and then you realize that the logistics of implementing the model takes over the whole thing, right? Like, like you're just working with the registrar's office to figure out one of the classes going to be offered. And this is all new to me, right? I focus on faculty development. So now this opens up a whole new perspective of like the logistics. What classes are, uh, one of the classes, how many? Uh, what, what do you do with transfer students who come in two years in and, and, and other folks have been starting? What do you do with evening and online students? So one thing has been that you almost have to take a backseat with the pedagogical a little bit for the logistics of courses and the registrar could work itself out because it's too much for faculty to take in. It's like, I just got to figure, I just have to map out these courses for a second and then I can focus on developing those courses. So that's one thing. The other thing though is because the, 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 first, the first step, one of the first steps in terms of pedagogy and aligning aligning it with the new model is just identifying the courses that already exist that align with those pathways. And you realize there's a lot of people teaching courses that really do fall into one of those pathways. So, you know, it, it and, and it helps with the morale of it all, right? Because you, you 
the faculty feel validated. Like, oh, we've been doing some of this stuff. We're just kind of packaging it differently so we can help students see the bigger picture, right? Because a lot of this is like a marketing thing, right? It's like students and their families got to see that you're going to provide the best education possible to them. And while the courses may not change drastically, the packaging and the framing of those courses and the sequence of those courses change. So a lot of it right now is really focusing on that part, right? Like, how do you how do you package it? What classes are going to go when? You, you realize the, the logistics of it really takes up a lot of the time before you start talking about what the course is actually going, going to entail. Right, so it sounds like there was this vision for this curriculum, and now you're in the nuts and buzz of trying to get it all organized and, and, and situated so that students can actually engage in these pathways, engage in these internships, and that can be a pit stop before you get to return back to faculty and say, okay, so how do we keep working on your pedagogy and your teaching and how to enact the work in your classrooms? Mark, you mentioned earlier about your leadership team on your campus reflecting your student body. And I imagine that that alone is a transformational practice that allows your students to see themselves in leadership positions at an institution that they're attending for higher education. You also mentioned disaggregating data in the classroom level to understand the nuances of where the racial equity gap exists in classrooms and in courses at, at UConn Hartford. And I'm wondering how that work is leading to transformation in the classroom. You began to hint at this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could speak more about what's the impact that you're seeing on these efforts, you know, in terms of, of the various things you've mentioned so far on this call, what's the impact that you're seeing in terms of how faculty are showing up, how they're teaching their classrooms, or what your students are expecting in the classroom in terms of their learning environment? Yeah, I mean, the, the quick answers were just getting started with this, and I think learning from folks like Joshua who are doing this work institutionally across is really exciting and one thing that we need to work on more. Uh, preliminarily, we do have some uh, a result of this, for example, the, the data disaggregation the intervention piece in, in, in a particular classroom setting has shown that student outcomes, a reduction in DFW rates has been a success of those kinds of interventions and focusing on this again bringing together a lot of different folks together to the table, the, the faculty member, you know, support folks both on the faculty development side and on the student services side, all of this at once is improving student outcomes and supporting students where that, so that's been helpful. But as I said, having just started five years ago, plus the pandemic, we don't have a lot of sense of what will happen the next five years. I'm very hopeful that this is the right work that we're doing is the right way to go. We've seen, for example, in, in other spaces, which are re related, you know, in research, for example, as an R1, right, this is part of our mission too, is to generate research. And as a public R1 to generate, for me, generate research that is supportive of communities, that is supportive of the public, right? So we're just now, thanks to our Research on Resilient Cities, Equity and Racism program run by David Embrick, seeing Funding coming in to do work in community and connect students to those learning possibilities as well. So that that piece is already yielding success. And again, it's something we're going to be doing and merging with the TRHT efforts. We're launching a strategic planning process this month for the university, and we're finally going to be able to think about how to build this out and what kind of impacts it's going to have on our students and, and, and the university in general. 
Thank you so much, Mark, for that explanation. And we just want to thank both of you for your time and your expertise today. You both raise important insights about what it means to transform an institution to center and serve racially minoritized students. And you both share powerful examples of how to do this. From what Mark shared about UConn Hartford using visuals to change the institutional narrative, this aggregating classroom data to get a nuanced view of racial equity gaps, and also using targeted teaching approaches to transform learning, and also meeting students' immediate needs through the food bank. And Joshua, you shared about networking, internships, and experiential learning opportunities that help students make connections between what they're learning and the long-term objective of where they can be after graduation. This brings about the importance of reassuring historically marginalized students that their time and monetary investment in the academy is well worth it. And we appreciate your definition and implementation of transformational practices for faculty and staff and students at each of your respective institutions particularly because you are both engaged in changing systems and structures in academia that centers humanity. And a major takeaway from this conversation is when you are committed to those who have been stripped of their humanity, such as the various student populations that we've been talking about today, you have to begin with those students in the curriculum. So we will wish you the best in institutional projects and endeavors that are on the horizons as they will be impactful to our communities and to higher education more broadly. And once again, we are so thankful for your time and wisdom and insight for today's podcast. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart. 